I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You don't think that it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women, and I am a woman. At some point, you gotta decide for yourself who you are. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. How do you go about getting an exorcism? I beg your pardon? Hi, this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast. Now, if you're a regular listener, you'll already know about my monthly MK3D show, which has been coming live from the BFI South Bank for several years now. Under COVID, the show has moved online. You can now find it free to view on BFI Player. Our most recent show, which was a post-London Film Festival special, went up on Monday. And as always, after an MK3D, we like to put longer versions of the interviews here on Kermode on Film. So, coming up in this podcast, I'll be speaking to Alim Khan and Joanna Scanlon, the director and star of After Love, which played at the LFF and opens here in the UK next year. And I'll be talking to Riz Ahmed, whose new film Mogul Mowgli was also an LFF hit and is in cinemas this Friday. But let's start by speaking to Tricia Tuttle, director of the London Film Festival. There were over 60 features over the course of 12 days this year, which were watched either online from home or by attending safe live screenings at cinemas around the country. The standard was as high as ever, with Steve McQueen's Mangrove as the opening film and Francis Lee's Ammonites, with Kate Windsor and Saoirse Ronan closing the festival. Altogether... This enormous feat made for the highest LFF attendance on record. I spoke to Trisha Tuttle the morning after the closing night of the LFF. I should say that her kid was having a sleepover, so excuse the noise at the start, it does go away. So firstly, how are you and how has the festival been for you? Well, do you know what? I'm sort of a mix of really joyous and more tired than I've been in my entire life. Um, And that's because... We completely reinvented the festival this year. I mean, every single element beyond programming principles are the same. We were going for that same great mix of, you know, restored classics from the archive, films from around the world, really something something for everyone who loves cinema, even people who don't know they love cinema yet. I mean, that's the sort of principle behind the way we program. But everything else, we, we really, like, new website for the BFI, new um, elements to BFI Player to allow it to be a festival um, sort of premiere venue, um, you know, everything. Every letter we wrote to rights holders, every, um, every uh, relationship that we managed was completely different. So I'm really exhausted, but I'm really proud of the team. I mean, we had to completely reinvent the festival. Everything beyond the programming um, was different this year, but it was a huge success. And so I feel really proud. I feel proud of what we've done. And I also um, can see that the festival really touched a lot of people and we've had great comments from people saying it's been one of their highlights of 2020 this year um, so I think the cinema industry needs something to get excited about and I'm glad that we've been able to provide that. 
one of the things that everyone was uncertain about, I mean, all festivals, was, you know, whether it was possible to do a blend of live and online um, and make it work. Has there been anything that has actually been an advantage to what happened? I mean, obviously, you know, nobody thinks COVID is a good thing, but is there anything about the way the festival had to be reconfigured that is actually better? Yeah, I mean, I think um, things that we definitely want to take with us into next year are the way that we achieve that sort of long-term goal of the festival, which is to be of um, be accessible to audiences outside of London. And I think, um, you know, without COVID, we never would have been able to sort of demonstrate that you can have both a live and a virtual festival at the same time successfully without, with both enhancing each other rather than, um, than sort of cutting across each other. But that will definitely be something that I feel... Um, we we take forward in the future because, you know, there are audiences, if you're lucky enough to live in a town with a cinema like the Watershed or the Showroom in Sheffield or Home in Manchester or the BFI South Bank, um, if you live in London, then you have a great cultural cinema. But lots of people want to see great films and they don't have access to those cinemas. So I, I think that is really, really an improvement we'll take forward. And was it possible to tell from the data that you've uh, that you've accumulated where people were watching virtual screenings? I mean, I imagine it was all over the country. Well, so we're still looking at exactly where, but forty um, percent of the audience who audiences who watched films on BFI Player came from outside of London. Um, we also know that press and industry delegates who are really important in making audiences aware of new films coming out came from all across the UK. So it really, really was a, a UK widespread. I mean, those um, that 40% on player of public audiences watching came in, from lots of cities, but they really, the spread is UK wide. But, you know, Glasgow, Manchester, Bristol, big um edinburgh as well big uh big viewing uh, viewing clusters on on the player okay so it seems to me that the, the 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 positive takeaway from all of this is that the the festival has by its nature had to be more open and inclusive and that this would be something which looking forward to future festivals you can build on to make it you know something that more people can get involved in definitely i mean we absolutely want to be back in cinemas but i think that combination of access through the virtual premieres and um really incredible live um cinema experiences is the way of the future for festivals okay so highlights for you what were the what were the things that really stood out for you from a festival of many highlights yeah so well opening the festival with steve mcqueen's mangrove from his bbc small acts series um really will i think it will really be a historical moment for the festival um i've seen two of the five films and they're both masterpieces i mean they're incredible films and from what i've heard the other three are are just as strong so i think we have been part of a moment um in british cinema history which is really important i mean the bbc have invested in steve who's one of our greatest filmmakers operating at the height of his powers right now, um, making something that, you know, we've been crying out for in, in British cinema, these sort of stories that haven't been told about um, British history by incredible actors. Um, so I feel that was really big, um, a big moment for the festival and will remain so. Um, also, um, doing the screen talk with David Byrne, I mean, that 
personal highlight for me. He was incredible and um, and I loved having him at the festival. Um, Siming Lang having 8,000 views um, for his screen talk, that that is incredible. I mean, that's exciting to know that there are cinema fans view, you know, wanting to hear from uh, filmmakers all over the world. So that, those were all real highlights for me. And what was the most difficult thing to achieve? What was the thing that gave you the most sleepless nights and the most anxiety? Live cinema experiences in trying not to break the COVID restrictions and keep people safe. Um, I mean, particularly two weeks before our opening night, we uh, we had this the rule of six came into force. So just trying to get our heads around how we move people through the building um, was really, really difficult. But um, I think cinemas are probably some of the safest places to be, um, public places to be, because they've really, really thought through how to make, keep people safe. We've had a lot of discussions about this recently. I mean, I understand that not everybody is completely confident about going back to cinemas. I've been in cinemas quite a lot since lockdown ended. Um, I understand the situation is in flux. But um, I have found the distancing and the cleanliness and to be, to be second to none. In fact, I have felt safer in cinemas than I have in supermarkets and restaurants and pubs. Um, do you want to say something? Because obviously we all need the cinema industry to, you know, to be back and thriving again. Do you want to say something about the experience of being in a live screening for somebody who hasn't done it yet? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, I can speak to what my colleagues at the BFI South Bank have done is incredible. So we've had, we have three cinemas that are operational right now and all the audiences for each of the cinemas go in and out different exits. So you're not crossing audiences. Um, you have to wear a mask throughout the whole, um, the whole cinema experience. It's, it's, um, virtual tickets so nobody's ever sort of tearing your ticket or you know we're, we're not exchanging pieces of paper um it really is inc incredibly safe um and it's socially distanced in the cinemas i mean we're operating at 30 percent of the our normal capacity and we've taken seats out um between customers as well too but i think you're right that people are um some people are nervous but i know lots of people are yearning for that cinema experience and our, our closing film on saturday night ammonite Francis Lee's incredible Ammonite um, went to 350 cinemas around the UK and on Saturday it was the top box office top number one film in the country um, wow. so if the films are there people want to go see them they really do um, so I, I, re I hope people will um, will know that cinemas are, are keeping them safe and go back that kind of thing must be so rewarding to, to, to have been at the top of the box office on that Saturday night when it was showing around. Because, you know, uh, I mean, with everything that's going on, that's not just a success. That's like a resounding, you know, corner pocket. Absolutely take that to the bank. That must have been such a great moment when you found out that it had done that well. Yeah, Lionsgate let us know this morning and they're they're over the moon. I mean, they, they work really hard. Um, but, you know, they had they had cinemas like Thurso in the northernmost, um, as far as you can go on the British mainland. Um, and they went to Guernsey. So they were as far north and south as you could possibly go. Um, and that was great. Number one at the box office. Now, I know that you're probably... Uh, not able to do this but of all the films that that you showed at, at the LFF this year what was your favorite well I, festival director can never tell favorites I know that's why I asked you <laughs> I'll, I'll say two two films that um really well three films that really blew me away this year um Brandon Cronenberg's Possessor 
um, which is just incredible. I mean, if you can stomach the violence, it's truly, truly gratuitously gory. Um, but it's it's such a great film. I mean, he's very much in the sort of Cronenbergian legacy. It's bits of Videodrome, but he's his own filmmaker. I love that. Chaitanya Tamhain's um, The Disciple is an incredible Indian film, beautiful music. Um, and also David Byrne's American Utopia, um, because it made me feel so positive about um, how we can change things if we all work together and it also just made me dance around my living room when I watched it um, so those three were really special moments for me this year. So just say on the subject of the uh, of the gratuitous uh, violence in the Brandon Cronenberg you know it's, it's the Simpsons thing if I don't watch the violence how am I going to become desensitized to it and I don't want somebody not doing that and uh, of everything that happened I mean one of the things that usually happens at festivals is that there will be a film that you can tell in the in in the room it's dividing audiences and that's always kind of really interesting now obviously that's different when you have virtual screenings but were there films that you could tell were sparking debate that were sparking different of opinion. Yeah, I think so. I mean, what what's great is that we did get that feedback loop um, via social media because even though many people were watching films from their own living rooms, that that desire for collective engagement was totally there. So you could see people talking about the films afterwards on Twitter and in sharing their thoughts on Instagram. So I think films that really divided people. I mean, definitely The Disciple um, divided people, but sparking debate. I felt like there was a sort of consensus uh, opinion around most of the films maybe because people were just so joyful at being able to watch films together and talk and there were some really great films in the festival and in maybe one of the positives as well too this year is because we went from 220 features to 50 features people were all watching the same films and talking about the same films so um you know that that was great to see i don't think there was anything that really sparked debate though okay all right. So just as a sort of final thought, 2020 has been a very hard year, I think, for everybody. And, you know, the cinema industry has had a very hard time. Um, everybody is now hoping very much that everything will rectify itself in the near future. But obviously there are a load of independent cinemas, particularly who have had a very, very tough time. And um, do you feel positive about the future? Do you feel like it's OK we are going to get through this and we are going to be back and thriving in the not too distant future. Yeah, I mean, I feel very positive about it. I mean, it's I don't think the cinema industry is going to look the same when we come out the other side of COVID as as what it did before. Um, but I hope there'll be sort of positives in that. I mean, I'd love to think that our cultural and independent cinemas will become even more unique and you know part, even more community hubs than they are now and and have programming that's distinguished from one cinema venue to the other um, rather than feeling like wherever you go in the country you're going to see the same films and and also yeah. having those blockbusters dominate cultural screens I'd love to see that shift and change a little bit I mean I think people want to see a wider range of films um, I love seeing Saint Maud you know number one in the box office as well too um that was terrific and you know more of that more of that on the other side of this some um, more variety more films from around the world um you know films that really are a, have something to say about the world that we live in okay and a final question should bond have slipped or should they just have stuck to their guns and got on with it 
I mean, you know, I don't think I can tell someone how to run their business and essentially that's what it is. But I think what we saw on the weekend with Ammonite being number one at the box office, if you've got great films, people will go out and see them. Yeah. I can tell people how to run their business. It was a mistake. They let everybody down. They shouldn't have done it. They should all be ashamed. Thank you so much. It's been great talking to you about the Congratulations on the festival. Man. I have to say, you really pulled it out of the bag because heaven knows that was a hard thing to pull off. So congratulations and uh, get some rest. I will. Thank you, Mark. <laughs> My thanks to LFF director Tricia Tuttle. And if you were part of the London Film Festival experience, either in person or online, then let me know about your experiences. You can tweet me at Kermode Movie or at Kermode on Film. Now, one of my favourite films at the LFF this year was After Love. Joanna Scanlon stars as the widow who uncovers her late husband's secret. Aline Khan wrote and directed this drama that straddles the English Channel and grapples with identity. I'll speak to Aline and Joanna in a moment, but first, here is a clip from After Love. Kalina's a nice name, isn't it? Beautiful. I hate it when they shave the girls, though. Well, the boys have it too. It grows back thicker. It's stronger for it. I know. I just don't like to see it. It's no different to a baby getting its head ducked into a bowl of water at a christening. They don't actually do that, you know. Bizarre. That was like a cat that got the cream. Uh, I am pleased for her though. I think she's going to make a good grand. So uh, let's begin by uh, uh, welcoming uh, Joanna and Alim. Uh, welcome both of you to MK3D. I'm sorry that it's virtual and online, but obviously what with one thing and another and everything that's going on, everything is like this. Now, the film is going to be playing uh, at the LFF, which obviously has had to kind of it's to, to change its format as a result of everything that's going on. Alim, first and foremost, Describe for us the film and where the story of the film comes from. So After Love, it's a drama. It's a story about a woman called Mary who's in her early 60s. Uh, she lives in Dover with her husband. And Mary's a white English Muslim uh, convert. And she, um, her husband dies basically. And she, in the days after his death, is going through his things. And she discovers a whole kind of trove of, of secrets. And that sets her off on this journey to kind of discover the other side of this man that she had spent her whole life with. And in doing that, it kind of opens herself up to kind of looking at the choices that she made in her life. And I guess she starts to kind of unpick kind of every kind of thread of herself in doing that. Um, I mean, the story is, it's not autobiographic, but it's very, it's very close to home. A number of the, the the elements in the plot and you know the themes are very inspired by my own life. And you know my mum is a um, Muslim convert. You know she's been with my dad since she was fifteen, and she converted when she married him. And I think growing up, I was acutely aware of being kind of in between these two worlds in a sense. And my mum was the same, I guess. She was trying to navigate that kind of this new identity that she'd taken on and it had kind of become who she was, who she is. But 
Um, so I think I was always really interested in exploring that sense of identity, how we construct our identities and who we construct our identities for. Um, so, yeah. One of the things that critics are often accused of doing is giving away too much of a plot. And there is a revelation fairly early on in the film um, about something that uh, our, our central character discovers. I'm going to leave it to you to say whether or not uh, we should reveal in advance what it is that she discovers. I think it's, it's okay to. I think otherwise it becomes really complicated to kind of talk about the story and, and the deceit and the other family is, is central to this journey. So it's, it's totally fine. So essentially, fairly early on in the film, following the bereavement, um, our central character discovers that her husband, who she thought she knew, actually has a whole other life. And geographically quite close, although separated by a stretch of water. Joanna, describe for us your character and how that revelation affects her. Well, Mary is... Um, living in a fairly comfortable life in Dover as we meet her. Um, as Aleem says, she's a convert to Islam and, and not only uh, to the faith, but also to the family that she's been part of as, as part of the marriage. And um, there's a way in which, perhaps not giving too much away, that that she's been buried in this marriage. There's a sense in which she's a buried figure. Um, she discovers that her husband has been essentially living a double life and has a, a mirror family on the other side of this channel, this water, that represents so much about what it is to be English, these white cliffs of Dover and this distance to Calais. And she goes, she goes over there to discover, well, I'm not sure that she knows what she is going to, to find or look for. But when she's there, gradually, this sense of her, her true self, perhaps, it's not even something that she was before she was married, but as, as, as somebody that she didn't know she was begins to emerge and she begins to become an agent in her own experience. Um, you know, verging on, verging on the tragic, actually, at times. Um, and it certainly connects to her own tragedies. Now, the, the central idea is that her husband has led a double life. But what very soon happens is that she ends up leading a double life because when she arrives, she is immediately mistaken for something else. Aleem, tell us about that misidentification, because actually it's really important that she is mistaken for somebody yeah. that she is. It was at the script, even at kind of at script stage, it was a scary point in the story because it was something that we really stressed over because if you don't buy into that at that point, it, everything else kind of falls apart. And, and I don't think it, I think it, I think it really holds. And I think you, you totally get swept up in this kind of, this moment, you know, Mary is kind of, she meets Genevieve and she's, she's mistaken. And, and because Genevieve is in such a rush, and she's busy trying to trying to um, kind of pack up her home. There, from a character point of view, she doesn't have time to kind of second guess this character. Um, and it was really important um, to kind of to get that right. And uh, yeah, but I think you know one of the things for me that's really important in this uh, story was this sense of kind of duplicity. This kind of um, 
the film is very much about kind of deceit and the lies that we tell the closest people to us that you know this, you know we can live our whole lives with someone and they can still be strangers to us and i was really drawn to that idea and i loved this kind of idea of how mary is a victim in some ways she's you know she's this deceit has been perpetrated against her and she is a victim but i i wanted her to also become complicit in that in some way and by going into this family's home and going through their things and helping them pack up their life she not only learns about herself and this kind of other side of this life her husband occupied but it she she really crosses a number of li red lines there and i for me it was a question that i wanted the audience mm -hmm. to kind of watch and and i guess kind of reflect on where their own red lines would be um, at what point they thought Mary had crossed certain like lines, you know, where there was no kind of return. Because I think that's quite revealing about us and where our own moral compass lies. So I was kind of, I was really interested in that. Bonjour. Excusez-moi. Je peux vous aider? Vous êtes de l'agence, mais je n'ai jamais confirmé. Pardon, madame. Um, uh, I'm sorry. I am... Um, I'm confused. You are here for the cleaning? Just a sec. Excusez-moi, une seconde. Allô, oui? Oui, attendez, attendez, une seconde. You can do it now, since you're here, but I never confirmed. Oui. So, Joanna, tell us about that line, because there's a, there is a really intriguing moment when you realise that your character has realised that she's been mistaken for somebody else. And there's a, there's a, there's a moment, it, I can't quote the line because it's a facial moment, there's a moment in your expression when your expression says, right, I've now got one over on you and I can use this. So tell us about how that, how that happens, because obviously when she arrives, you know, she says she's going to confront this other person, but then this strange thing happens. Yeah, I think um, it's quite emotional that, because I, I'm not sure how much of a kind of an idea that is, so much as a feeling. Mm -hmm. And certainly when this, when this person looks down upon her and sees her as lesser in some way, um, what I, I felt is, you know, in the playing the role is that this, this other person in Mary emerges who says, I will not be looked down upon. I will not only is the man we share my husband, but I won't have uh, this woman feel superior to me in some way. And I think that's the kind of emotional incentive to, to take to get inside her life to begin to, you know, become a parasitical destroyer, potentially, of what this woman's life might be. And I, I know myself, there's that sense of, you know, the English are seen as, you know, sort of um, lesser women. The, 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 the femininity of the French woman is sort of put on a pedestal. And, mm -hmm. you know, in the cultural landscape, the English have always been seen as dowdy and fusty and, you know, whatever. And then you add into that the wearing of the, the head covering, 
and that becomes something even that this woman is also looking down upon for cultural, mm -hmm. social, socio, socioeconomic reasons. And then suddenly this kind of rage appears inside, a tiny rage, but it begins to sort of suggest a way of being. And I think it crucially comes down to that scene when, I mean, I don't know how much we should speak about the specific scenes, but it seems to me that scene of, of taking hold of Genevieve's lipstick and uh, adopting her you know, mini phallic symbol, but, you know, adopting her power as, as her own yeah. is really crucial to that, that sort of woman war that goes on throughout the film. There's also a strange element of superpower about it. Um, Aleem, it reminded me of, there's a Vim Vendors film, I think it might be The End of Violence, in which somebody does something and they're wanted by the police and they're in Los Angeles and they discover that the way to disappear is to disguise themselves as a Mexican gardener because nobody looks at the Mexican. And they are then able to spend the rest of the movie very central, but without anybody even looking at them. And in Mary's case, she almost has a superpower, which is that she kind of becomes invisible, that it yeah. doesn't occur to anyone that she's doing what she's doing. I wonder if you can say something about that way in which that becomes empowering. Yes, I think, well, I certainly, in my own real life, um, I have recognised that. I'm five foot two, dumpy, um, and don't have, you know, I don't catch anybody's eye on the street. And I've always noticed I can get away with many, many experiences, whereas other people who, for whatever reason, have attention drawn to them are less safe. So, for example, you know, I, I lived in a flat once and um, somebody was living with me and they were constantly being hassled on the street, a man, and, you know, they were mugged a few times. And I thought, I walked through this part of town, which is a really rough, difficult, nasty part of town where all sorts of stuff is going on and I'm invisible. And I, I like that about my life. I like the fact that you can't, nobody really notices me. And I think it's, it's very much a height thing in my experience. But, you know, if you take that internally and make that a kind of emotional, um, you know, an emotional covering, emotional cloak, that's how Mary is beginning to re recognise her power. And I, I, I certainly, because it's something I related to completely, I thought, yeah, yeah, I, I, but inside you don't want to be that. You, you, nobody really wants to be, have nobody take any attention of them. You just want to be able to use it when you need to. Um, to but it's a, it's, a re, it's a remarkable thing because obviously your face will be very, very familiar to viewers. But I remember reading that David Bowie used to be able to walk down Oxford Street and nobody noticed because he kind of dialed it down and just got on with just looking like everybody else. Mm. And it was only when he, when he stepped into performance mode that he became the person that everyone had recognized. I mean, I think that must be a, a great blessing to be able to be someone as successful as you are and as recognizable as you are to actually be able to move unnoticed through crowds. Oh, abs absolutely. I've I'm almost never recognized. Um, it's only if you go to the Soho house or somewhere, <laughs> somebody will say, I saw you in, you know, it's, it's, it's in the real world. Um, yeah, I'm, I, I, I'm very invisible and I, God, long may it last, I would not wish for that on anybody. 
Now, Aleem, obviously you've had a long-standing relationship with the BFI and BFI Distribution are, are distributing the film. I think it's going to be released uh, in the spring, although obviously, as I said before, it's, uh, it's playing at the LFF. Tell us about your relationship with the BFI. And I mean, you've had several accolades for previous shows, but why, is, why, why are the BFI the perfect home for this film? I mean, BFI Distribution, I think uh, they're a great team and I think their choices recently um, have been incredible. They've done, you know, they've put out some really great some really great films. And so I'm really happy that they're distributing the film. I mean, my relationship with the festival and with the BFI in general, um, they, they played the first short film I ever made back in 2009. And I just kind of kept this relationship. They played my last short film, Three Brothers, and they financed that as well. Um, and like through the network and like the various development schemes that they've done, like I, I've kind of like a BFI child. I've gone through all the kind of different <laughs> done and like development programs and um so it's really really nice and uh, you know we did have we have had selections at Cannes and Telluride and other really wonderful festivals um and obviously they haven't gone ahead um but there's something really special about the first time that anyone sees this film will be in London in my hometown and it's also going to be the first time that my parents and the crew and the cast we're all going to see it at the same time and I think it's going to be a very um, powerful moment. I'm kind of terrified, to be honest, about, um, about the screening because <laughs> my parents are going to be there. <laughs> my parents have this kind of, I don't know, it's a bit of a joke in my family that they're like, oh, you know, who's, who's the next victim that you're going to be kind of making a film about? <laughs> and so um, I, I, I'm nervous about them seeing it. I mean, the film isn't autobiographic, but there are they will see themselves in this film really clearly. And, um, you know, there are some real things that are in, you know, the loss of the baby and all this kind of stuff is, is real, it's true. So it's, it, it will be, they're very proud, but it's, you know, it's, it's a big moment for everyone who's touched the film to kind of um, to be seeing it at the same time. I mean, it's a real blessing. I'm really grateful that we're actually having a physical screening because it's the thing that I missed, I think it's a step in the process for me as the filmmaker. Um, you know, you spend years writing the thing and you make it and you spend like over a year editing it. And then we haven't had that final step of like, you know, showing people. And I, I need that actually to kind of, I think to kind of mentally move on to the next thing. Joanna, what was it like being directed by Aliman? How, how close is the film to the script that you were presented when you first came on board? I think it's changed a lot from the script, but not really so much in the shooting as in the editing, um, at the editing stage. The, the, it, I mean, Alim had been working on the script for six years. He was really sure of it, if you like. He knew exactly what it was going to be. And that I found really hard to work, work with because there wasn't really a massive interpretative role for me within that however I think what that that's ended up with is that I often felt very constrained by the the, the script and the way it, it it was set but then the I think what ultimately that has given is a sense of a kind of in, a closed enclosed woman you know that I, I often felt like I couldn't move freely I wasn't able to to just be the sort of naturalistic it wasn't, it wasn't really a naturalist, fully naturalistic performance wasn't really required. And that, that 
left me feeling very tight physically and very closed. And I think that's worked really well for the film. There's a sense in which this hidden inner world is trying to get out, but can't. And is, is you know, there's a lot of, a lot of stillness. There's a lot of beautifully framed, amazingly beautiful shots where the whole frame is everything. And then in the midst of it, you have a woman who is just almost like a rock. Uh, and I, I think that's worked really, really well for the film. But in the process, it was really hard because I, I was kind of, you know, am I in Ken Loach? Am I in, you know, wh where, where is this film? What, what, you know, what are we, what are we talking about? Is this, is it, what genre? How do you, how do you play those? You know, running through your head are all those British film genres. Um, and I think, you know, this is the beauty of working with. Um, a writer director because they do have something of utterly their own that they're bringing to this to this they're not coming out of a box um, of tricks and I think everything that Aline brings to this script and then the the shoot and the edit is utterly is utterly unique and fresh uh, and I think I had a lot of difficulty um, adapting to that Aleem, do you want to say something about that and about, you know, working on the script for so long, by the time you began the shoot, did you know this is it? These are the words that I've got written or was there any role, uh, room for improv? So that's the thing. I think having spent like six years on the script um, and because the characters are so modeled on people, my parents basically, and people that I know and myself, like, because I know these characters so intrinsically well, um, and the script had so much time, I was very resistant to um, deviating from, from that. You know, I had a very clear idea on how I wanted things framed. And for me, Mary is a character who is so constrained in her skin, in her environment, in her life. And the framing of the film is very still, like it's very, like there is some movement, but it's very, clean and I think that's a challenge yeah. and I think also I mean it, it's a it's a difficult part for anyone to play for, you know it was a difficult part because so much of this film there's not very much dialogue in the film and it's one of the reasons I loved Joanna uh, for this part because she has so much in her face that she can express about the need for dialogue mm -hmm. and I think that's one of the things that um and, but that's a challenge. It's, it's a challenge to how, you know, communicate something with just your eyes or just your face, especially when the frame is quite tight. And so, you know, I, I, I know that it wasn't an easy part to play, but um, Joanna did, an, obviously, I think she's done an incredible uh, job with the role. There's also something about these languages in the film, um, the French film language that's in there as well, because when people are speaking French, uh, they're acting French acting too. <laughs> and then there's this English thing which is different. And I, I found that, like, I was enraged with jealousy of the fact that Genevieve is able to move physically and do things and be, you know, blah, 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 blah. and then, <laughs> you know, Mary is doesn't speak, has, it has no voice, her voice is taken from her, but, you know, uh, uh, and she's part of her... her self-realisation uh, is not present. And that was a really, actually, emotionally, that was a massive tension to yeah. play with. Um, yeah. 
I was so jealous, yeah, I mean, of Natalie because she she was sort of getting away with whatever she wanted. And I had to sort of be constrained as, as exactly as Aleem says. I, I love I love the idea that there's such a thing as French acting. I just I think I know I know exactly what you mean, but I just I just love that idea of acting French. <laughs> One of the things that's remarkable about the film, I've seen it a couple of times, and actually I, I, I kind of noticed this more on the second viewing. There are a couple of moments of what appear to be hallucinations. So we see cliffs crumbling, we see roofs cracking. Tell me about that, that strange sense of, you're looking at something, but you're not sure whether you're seeing it, you're not sure whether it's, uh, whether it's something that's from her POV. I mean, tell me about putting those elements in. So, I mean, so the cliff, the cliff imagery, the cliff kind of um, motif, as you, you might want to call it, was always there. I mean, for me, it's a real representation. It's kind of like a mirror of Mary's inner kind of psyche. And I mean, my connection to that yeah. landscape is my grandparents um, lived in Do lived in Folkestone. And so I know that landscape really well. And there was something about the proximity of Dover and Calais, which was really intoxicating to me because it just, it said so much about this mirror of these two women who are kind of, facing it you're kind of looking at each other all the time um but not really seeing each other and it just kind of plays into the themes of this husband who's kind of always been there but not really um has never really been in either place fully in his head and um i think with the cliff it was um it's kind of like a symbol of like a marriage a symbol of a life a symbol of this woman it's something that's made up of many layers and it's something that's evolving and it erodes and it reveals new faces all the time and so um because this because this film is almost entirely from mary's kind of point of view um i really wanted that and so much of the story happens in our own head so much of the journey is happening in our own head yeah. I liked this idea of how the cliff would mirror that kind of, the, as the cliff kind of broke down throughout, there's a kind of storytelling with this kind of evolution of, of, the, um, of the cliff face. And I think that's kind of mirror Mary's yeah. journey. So as she's kind of traversing this story and meeting these other characters and discovering this life, pieces of this cliff are breaking away. Pieces in the ceiling in her, in her own psyche are breaking and ultimately reveal something new at the end. So that was kind of how I, I guess, approached that kind of imagery. And it was really central, to, it was really important for me to have that because um, I guess of my connection to that landscape and um, the metaphor that that kind of speaks to. I think it's, it works really well. I think one of the reasons it works well is that it's not over-egged, is that it's actually kept very, very low-key to the point that you can almost watch the film without quite realizing that as i said i've seen it a couple of times it was the second time around i was much more struck by it joanna it's it's a terrific uh, performance what was the hardest thing about playing this role thank you um hmm. i think it was allowing that part of um myself which which almost connects to the fact that Mary has um, converted to Islam. Mm -hmm. So she is a woman of faith. And 
and there is not there's no irony to her either and I think that's about faith for me is often about that absence of irony or the absence of other perspectives that might you know kind of uh make something refracted yeah um and to approach her with that simplicity that almost innocence um that's not to say goodness because I don't think it is about goodness but it's a kind of innocence and faith and coming to channeling that part of myself I've done so much comedy over the years so many roles which uh rely entirely on that kind of you know raised eyebrow and to to let go of that completely yeah to just be um you know this is a role that required just you know almost letting go as, as I say I let go of you know Merchant Ivory I let go of you know Ken Loach Mike Lee they've all had to go and just be in in her allowing the being bit of of oneself as an actor and I think that's that's really hard I think that description of faith as the absence of irony is a beautiful description actually because I think that does cut to the to the heart of what of what that is and thanks for that but I think that's a that's a really lovely description does that ring true with you Ali? very much so very much so i mean when i think of my own mum i mean one of the things that when i watch the film what's quite powerful for me is to see i mean don't get me wrong joanna took this part and had to inject you know injected herself into this role she's not playing my mum but the character is very inspired by her. And it's, it kind of blows my mind, actually. There are certain scenes, Joanna just does these things with her eyes that just, it's like I'm watching my mum on screen. And my mum is a very simple, humble, wonderful human. She's, I mean, and Joanna's met her and they've spent some time together. She's the sweetest, most innocent person you'd really ever meet. And um, I think, what Joanna really, I think, infused the essence of my mum. Uh, and that's, I think, it's, I think it's a beautiful thing to see. I think that's one of the things why I'm nervous about the family seeing it, because I think it's going to just sort of weird them out. They're just going to be <laughs> in a weird way, like a version of my mum, but essences of my mum. So, yeah. Um. And, and um, she's also a very good cook. Um, and she did teach me to make roti and um, sag paneer for the film, because, you know, you remember there's a scene yeah, where we, we have to improvise making that. Um, and that, that was a great bonding, actually. I think there's that, the way that women can connect with each other in the kitchen, which, uh, you know, that was also in the, in the film, which was a scene that was dropped in the end, but where these women are in the kitchen. Um, I think there's something about that. It was almost like you, you can kind of connect with someone else's brain in, in how you each cook. So, um, and yeah. also what you enjoy to eat. So I think that's true. There was some sense of a, a cross, you know, a cross planting of, of um, values, if you like, with, with uh, Fozzie. It's a, I think it's a great tribute to that scene that, as I said, I've seen the film twice and both times when I've seen that scene, I felt hungry. <laughs> I just thought, okay, that's actually, that's working on a physical level because I love watching cooking and it really looks like that stuff is being cooked. So, um, as we said, the film will play at the LFF and it will open uh, in the UK in spring, whatever that currently means. 
let me ask both of you, um, how have you found being able to work or not during everything that's going on? Let's start with you, Aleem. Since lockdown and everything, have you been able to get on? Well, we were finishing the film during lockdown. And so we were meant to go, I was meant to go to New York to do the grade. Um, and obviously that, that didn't happen. So it was, um, I spent lockdown in North yeah. Norfolk and in this little cottage. It was, it was, it was great. I mean, it was, it, it was fantastic to be just kind of in nature really and just surrounded by cows, literally. Um, uh, so we, we, we were finishing the film, but it was weird because we were working on this iPad um, and grading the film and having the visual effects and kind of seeing everything on like a screen this big. And um, that was a challenge in a way. Um, it, it was a real challenge. <laughs> it's like kind of having the existential crisis of like, are we all going to die and trying to finish this film at the same time? To be honest, I, I was just working on this the whole time, throughout the whole of lockdown. So that, in a way that saved me because I had something to really focus on. I mean, I took so many books uh, with me and, you know, everyone, everyone was saying, oh, you know, you can start writing the next one, you can have all this downtime. But there was none of that. Like, I was so preoccupied with, with this. So um, I'm grateful for that because it, it kept me busy and, um, yeah, it kept me busy. I, I spoke to Jason Isaacs and I said, you know, have you been creative in lockdown? He said, well, you know, I finished the novel that I was writing and um, he said, and I, I wanted to learn Japanese. So I started doing that. And I said, really? He went, no, like everybody else, I've done nothing at all. Uh, Joanna, how's it been for you? Um, well, I had to sort of, I had a lot of work uh, laid out for the rest of the year, which of course immediately disappeared. Yeah. And I was sort of momentarily panicky about that and then I let it go I just let it drop I have done what everyone else has done I mean I, I was just actually saying to my husband earlier I was saying it's been great for us having lockdown it's been wonderful to be at home when you live a peripatetic existence usually you don't get mm. these big blocks of time together and actually I was, I was just at lunchtime we were saying it's been really wonderful actually being just being together for all this amount of time and I've got a production company with various things in development so of course I've been able to work on those as um, writing and uh, working with other writers and so on uh, I've I've read much less than I wanted to and I'm blaming this wretched internet for it and my phone and you know I, I just the distraction levels have still remained high and I had I did have an image of being able to get through war and peace still have that image but it doesn't quite happen yeah yeah it is funny isn't it how life intrudes even when you think you're completely isolated I exactly the same as you in fact funnily enough and I'm not making this up I did think I will read war and peace and I haven't, I, because I've always thought all my life, I'll read War and Peace. And yeah. it, 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 I haven't even, not even, not even page one hasn't begun at all. Um, no, well, no, but well, Mark, let's, let's say to each other now, what, one day we'll have a conversation where we have both read it, because it is <laughs> going to be worth it. <laughs> well, you know, I hear it's a page turner. I hear that once you get going, it's an absolute page turner. But okay, I tell you what, I'll, I'll make a deal with you, right? If one of us reads War and Peace the other one has to get it done pretty sharpish so we can have that conversation, okay? Sure, yeah, make, you're on. I make, a, I make a pact with you, that will happen. Thank you, yeah. Thanks both of you for joining me. Congratulations on the film, congratulations on it uh, being at the LFF. I look forward to the film opening uh, in the UK in the spring and uh, 
all the best both of you thanks ever so much for coming on the show thank you thank you thank you life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much like unexpected medical costs that's why united healthcare provides health protector guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs learn more at uh1.com Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. My thanks to Aline Khan and Joanna Scanlon after Love is in UK cinemas next year. Now, another film that really stood out for me at the LFF was Mogul Mowgli, Basam Tariq's film about a British-Pakistani rapper on the cusp of his first world tour who finds himself facing a debilitating illness. Riz Ahmed stars and co-wrote the script. I'll speak to him in a moment, but first, here's the trailer for Mogul Mowgli. Yeah, we'll ask you where you're from. Now, where are you really from? The question seems simple, but the answer's kind of long. Britons are on board, had another cup of tea in that. But where my jeans are from, people don't really MC in that. Now everybody, everywhere, want the country back. If you want me back to where I'm from, the proper need a mat. No man's land yet, between trenches, no thing grows there. But it's fertilized by the brown bodies that fall for Britain in the war, so when I spit a puppy grows there. Oh. I find my own place in this business of Britishness. So stop trying to find a box for us. Hi, Riz, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Where do we find you? Uh, I'm in LA right now. It's a slightly smoke filled sky uh, just after these presidential debates have happened. It feels a little bit ropey out here. Were you watching them go out live? I did watch it go out live, yeah. Yeah, scary stuff. How, yeah, how was it? I only saw, Obviously, they happened in the middle of the night here in the UK. I saw the... Well, highlights is not really the word. I saw the, some of the more depressing moments. Uh, how was it being there and watching it? You know, I think it's, it's, uh, it's a time of, I think, anxiety over here, and I think it's similar everywhere, to be honest. If you think about... Um, what's going on in the UK right now or India, of course, with the pandemic, it just feels like slightly kind of anxious time to be alive, doesn't it? It really does. It really does. Now, obviously in the middle of this, um, your film is playing the London Film Festival. I have to begin with a confession. I tried to see Mogul Mowgli in Berlin and I couldn't get a ticket. The ticket's like, it was the hot ticket in town. So I've now seen it here and it's great. It's terrific. Um, what was it like when it played in Berlin? Um, it, was, it was kind of uh, mind-blowing. Berlin was a, a little bit of a homecoming for me because my first ever film, The Road to Guantanamo with Michael Winterbottom, yeah. went to Berlin. And, um, you know, we won the Silver Bear there. And it was on the way back from Berlin that I was kind of detained by 
um, MI5 illegally, it turned out, and kind That's of right. interrogated and pushed about. And I remember they asked me a question in their interrogation, which is, well, did you become an actor to, to further the Muslim struggle? Which was baffling to me at the time, because I'd become an actor to be able to uh, date more women. And, um, <laughs> and what I realized was, actually coming back to Berlin, in a way, Mughal Mowgli is the answer to that question they asked. In a way, this is why I do what I do to try and kind of stretch culture, really. And I hope that Mughal Mowgli is a kind of a small contribution to, towards, I don't know, stretching the kinds of stories we see on, on screen. Certainly the screening at Berlin was, was uh, yeah, it was big and it was packed. And, and I think there was just a lot of people in that audience who just felt like they hadn't quite seen anything quite like this before um and it won't be to to everyone's taste but um i think it was quite connected quite deeply with the people who did connect with it well, as i said i've seen it i think it's terrific i think it's really urgent and, and vibrant even to somebody like me who what i know about uh, the music scene that it's describing you wouldn't fill the back of a postage stamp so for people who haven't seen it what's the film about for you give us a give us a kind of setup for the film well, the film is about um, a rapper called Zed, who, like me, is a British Pakistani rapper, spends a lot of time in the US, and he's kind of, um, you know, feels both out of a sense of mission and a sense of ego that he's kind of representing his community. But the reality is he hasn't been back to um, visit his community for a long time. And, and I guess the film poses the question, why are you chasing acceptance and love out there in the world out there from audiences and from twitter and from fame and validation externally when actually you you might need to find it a little closer to home uh, you might need to find it in yourself in a kind of self-acceptance um and a self-love and 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 zed's lack of self-love is kind of i guess dramatized by this autoimmune condition where his body is kind of rejecting himself you know it's kind of he's not accepting who he is. And, um, and so he has to kind of confront these, these questions about what really matters and what should he be chasing? And is it closer to home? The key line in the film seems to me to be the moment when Zed's told your body doesn't recognize itself. And this is on the one hand referring to what's happening to him physically, but it's also actually speaking to what's happening to him culturally, that he's not recognized or he doesn't recognize himself. It is, isn't it a film about finding your identity and your place? I think so. I think it's, um, you know, uh, in some ways an exploration of art and identity and how one constructs the other, you know, I think that's in, in a way he's, he's been using his um, identity to make art. You yeah. know, so when we meet Zed, he's kind of performing his identity, but he's not really at peace with his identity. And, and I think the way out for him is actually not to use your identity to make art, but to use art to make your identity. And that is, I think, where he kind of ends up getting to. And it's, I think it's a place that I'm kind of exploring really with this film in itself, you know, um, saying, okay, my identity is complicated in and of itself. Um, if I were to try and take it and sell it or peddle it, it would be a simplification of who I am and I'd still be hiding other parts of who I am. Why not instead kind of construct my identity creatively? And, and Basam Tariq, who's the director and a kind of, I think, an exciting new voice uh, cinematically, he kind of takes us on his journey in, in really unexpected ways. It's kind of got 
musical elements, horror elements, comedy elements, dramatic elements, um, quite spiritual kind of Sufi elements. And, and part of what Bassam is doing with this film is, it's, is, is actually saying, let me make a, a mongrel genre that speaks to my mongrel identity. You know, part of what we spoke about in making this film was not how do we just, you know, make a family drama we've seen before, but everybody's brown, but actually take from the DNA of uh, our cultural experience and try and create a cinematic language that re reflects our own complex um, identity. One of the things that's most interesting is that that mix of, on the one hand, you know, verite realism, but on the other hand, the magic realist uh, elements that there are, there are entire sequences. They're not so much hallucinations as they are uh, a slightly fantastical illustration of what is going on inside the character's head. When you were talking to Basam about the film, that must have been a very difficult area to, to discuss because it, it's kind of like, I can see it, but I can't describe it. Yeah, it was. I mean, this is, I think, one of those films where, I mean, it's, whenever you make a film, the film tells you what it is. Every time you try and kind of lasso it and tell it what it's going to be, it will, it will bolt. Um, and it was very much a kind of leap of faith. Um, <laughs> we saw it in our heads. We weren't sure if we were seeing it on set. We weren't sure if we'd find it in the edit. But ultimately, you know, um, with, 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 you know with a great team, we, I think we kind of, corralled it into something or it kind of cohered of its own accord into, you know, the thing that you see. Um, but it, but it was tricky, but in a way we felt that, that those magical realist elements, although they were a leap of faith, although they were a risk, spoke very directly to our experience, you know, and our lens on the world. I think, you know, Arthur Jaffa speaks about black visual intonation or Khalil Joseph talks about how black cinema shouldn't just kind of replicate white cinema with different casting. Um, it's actually about drawing on, for example, jazz and, and, and the rhythms of jazz in how you kind of tell black stories. And similarly, we wanted to draw on the, the rhythms and the sensibility of Hawali music, you know, and Sufi music and Sufi culture, which has magical mythology at its very heart, um, and to draw on that in, in telling this film. When you were making it, obviously because, you know, you're, you're an actor and a writer and a musician, and you have a very successful uh, musical career. Incidentally, this double bass that I put in the back isn't just a prop to impress you. That is actually the other half of my life. Um, how much did it matter that you, that you were a musician? Because it's... It's almost impossible for somebody who, who hasn't played that stuff to portray it on screen. So how important was it that you were a musician anyway and that you understood that world? Well, to be honest, it grew, you know, the character grew out of the fact that I am a musician. You know, Bassam wanted to make it very close and very personal to me. The overlaps between Zed and I are huge you know um, i'm playing a version of myself cranked up to 11 and then you know uh, all this kind of stuff so it is it kind of grew out of that i mean i was thinking it's a, a, you know another point to make him something else make him a journalist make him a writer and basam said no this has to be very very close to you which was scary and exposing but i actually think um it makes makes the film feel uh, more, well, I guess, yeah, scary and exposing in a, in a good way. <laughs> Did you, when you, we, there's a sequence at the beginning in which we see you playing and I was reading in the, in the notes that there was, your director shot originally a, a, a concert 
And then sort of, no, 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 I need to go back and redo that. So you restaged an American concert in London. What was the point of the restaging? What was, what was the thing that you didn't get from the actual footage of a, of a live concert? I think it was the realization that the, the space of performance um, needed to be a kind of slightly hyper-real space. Right. And shooting a kind of verite performance in a club in New York um, didn't start the foot off on the, the film on, off on the right foot. I think we needed to kind of make a statement of intent right at the start of the film that this is, this is not life as you know it, it's life as you experience it, which feels at times hyper-real and heightened and uh, mystical. You know, yeah. at times, yeah, and yeah. so I think we needed to kind of set up the parameters visually to to portray that. One of the things I really liked about the film, I, I, I always I like it if a film tells me something without me feeling that I'm being told it. And there is a sequence when you and another character in a, are in a back alley, and you hand him some uh, it's a it's a, a joint, and you hand it to him, and the hand which you use is significant, and there is then a discussion about you know hand it to me with the other hand because that's forbidden or it's not forbidden, it's frowned upon. What I loved about that scene was it seemed to me a perfect example of because I went into it thinking I don't know any of this, but I came out of it thinking I actually understand all of that, and at no point did somebody actually have to stop and explain it to me. Now, how did you manage that? Because um, it is a tightrope between knowing what the audience knows and knowing how much you need to tell them. Yeah. And, you know, I would say there's even a kind of big, bigger picture tightrope or obstacle to overcome, which is believing that audiences will connect with a story like this at all, you know, which can be such an insidious, insidious kind of self-limiting belief. Yeah. To be honest, is is uh, it's only internalized because it's imposed on so many um, storytellers. You know, if you don't see stories like this in culture and on screen, you kind of assume that no one wants to make it, no one wants to see it. And of course, what you find is the complete opposite. Um, so it was once we'd made that initial jump of okay, we're going to tell a story like this that's super personal, unapologetically specific, yeah. and unapologetically hard to categorize because we feel that we are mongrels making a film about mongrel identity, so it'll be mongrel genre. Once we made that decision, after that, it was kind of no going back. We just we just had to kind of make it as true to our ex experience as possible. And what we found was the more kind of granular we got into it, uh, the more we just enjoyed it and the less we were kind of making it for anyone else, as indulgent as that sounds. But I do think that... <laughs> Some of the best work that you that you that you make, or at least the work that is most um, resonates with people, is one where you're not making it with one eye on the audience. Yeah. You know, you're kind of just making it because you need to express something, you know, within yourself. Well, I mean, my own experience is that the more specific something is, the more universal it becomes. That actually, what you do is you find the universality through the specifics, and that scene really took me into the film because I felt like I was part of it. it. It's not a world that I know, but I felt like I was part of it because it's the Roger Ebert thing about, you know, cinema is a, a machine for creating empathy. That's what I felt that scene did. I thought it was really beautifully judged. The title of the film, Mogul Mowgli, has that, um, that thing you're talking about, about the, the Mongol identity. And also it comes from a Sweatshop Boy song. Tell us about the, the origin of the title. Um, yeah, so the title uh, Mogul Mowgli, I guess, speaks to the duality of our inheritance. Um, you know, Zed as a character through the course of the film has to contend with both the curse of his inheritance and that he finds it claustrophobic and the expectations um, 
uh, and also this kind of autoimmune illness that he inherits, but also the gifts of his inheritance, um, you know, the riches and, and the way that actually culturally there is a template for resilience, it, 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 you know, if you were to look back uh, to your past, this idea that if you want to find a way forwards, look back first. Um, and so that's kind of what, what the film's about. And, and, and that's also what this, uh, you know, the title speaks to that duality in that on the one hand, we've inherited as people, as children of diaspora, this rich kind of civilizational legacy, you know, of like pan-Islamic or South Asian or um, art and culture um, and literature. But actually we experience it as Mowgli's you know, as, as characters that have been kind of separated by the white imagination from their point of origin and kind of, you know, stranded in this kind of urban jungle, unsure of who to emulate or, or who to be. And so that mogul Mowgli kind of dichotomy, I guess, is speaks to, um, you know, Zed's identity and, and, and some of the themes that the film explores. And it's taken from a Sweatshop Boys song where... Um, yeah, I'm kind of talking about, I guess, who should I be? Who do people want me to be? You know? how, how important is it to you that the film's playing at the London Film Festival? I know that obviously because of everything that's going on, you know, the fact that festivals are managing to happen at all is fairly miraculous. Mm -hmm. And obviously there is this, you know, a virtual element to it. So it's not like, a, like what perhaps would have happened, you know, in Berlin. It's amazing to think that Berlin was literally just before all of this kicked off. Just before, yeah. But... How, how important is it to you that it's playing at the LFF? It's very important. You know, this is a British film at its heart. And um, it's, it's, although we won't be able to share it with audiences in the same way, it does feel like a homecoming. You know, I, I, I'm just very excited by the idea that a film like this can kind of be part of our kind of, you know, our output, you know, in, in the British film industry. Um, and be celebrated at something like the LFF. I, I hope it will kind of open the door for more films like it and more films better than it and more films that kick against it, you know. <laughs> um, but it's kind of tricky because going into making something like this, Basam and I didn't quite have a template, you know, to work from. Yeah. Uh, we haven't quite had often... Gets, yeah, I mean, this is just quite... This kind of story told in this particular kind of way is, is, is um, a bit of a kind of leap of faith and so to have it embraced at LFF is, is really important. Yeah. There's a, there's a line in the film when Zed is told, for somebody who talks so much about where they're from, you haven't been home very much recently. Um, how is it, where is home for you? Do you st is, this, is London still home? Where is your home? My home is London and I, that's where I live. So I came out here about a month ago to start working on a, on a project, which again, miraculously, that projects are happening and fingers crossed they, they continue to safely. But, um, but I'm very much kind of rooted in, in London. I have spent extended periods away from home and the nature of my job is that I do spend extended periods away from home. And then that does start to become the kind of contradiction, right? Like, yeah, like I'm out there repping people or doing it for my family or for my kids or all this kind of stuff is like, oh, actually, maybe they just want to see you. Um, and it kind of throws into question like how much of this is your sense of you know noble mission and how much of it is this kind of is, is ego really and, and again that's something that that Zed confronts in, in the film what's happening with Hamlet 
you know, everyone asks that, and it's just. Oh, it's just I'm sorry. I'm sorry to ask no, it, but you know. No, no, no. Um, I'm, I'm, I hope it's. I, I'm hoping that we will shoot it next year. I mean, the pandemic is happening with Hamlet. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It's just a, it's just a wild time. Um, but I think we're. It feels like, and this is something that developed for. I mean, about ten years now. Um, eight years, eight and a half years. It feels like, hopefully, next year we will do it. Fingers crossed. Knock on wood. Um, watch this space, but I almost kind of don't want to say anything about it until sure. it's okay. And, but are you are you returning to any form of normality in terms of? I mean, are our productions getting made, albeit at, you know distancing? Is it is the film industry working again? I mean, I think in pockets the film industry is working again. I think it's um, it's it's. I think it's kind of like creating a bit of a two tier system again. Right, I think indie films and smaller productions who can't afford the extra burden of COVID compliance and all the testing that it requires and all the expense of that are suffering. They're not being yeah. made. Sure. And I think the bigger projects, stuff that's backed by the streamers or the studios, that stuff is starting up again. So I think we're seeing a bit of a bifurcation uh, taking place, um, which I hope you know. I hope it doesn't continue too long. I, you know, we need to get indie films back up and running they're the lifeblood of the industry and are you managing to still write and create and record whilst all this has been going on well i did go in for a remote recording um session not too long ago and that was that was pretty normal actually um going to rehearsals here for this project has been kind of interesting everyone walking around with masks the whole time um, yeah. normal, I guess is like, it depends what you mean by normal. Um, what's been really interesting is just seeing how, um, how quickly we've been adapting to it yeah. in, in a strange way, as much as we haven't been in others. So I guess we're looking at a kind of a new normal and a new way of doing things. I think that, for example, I was going to tour my album this summer and we couldn't. So I think we're looking at doing a digital performance of it um towards the end of the year so who knows let me uh, i i know that we're running out of time so let me just ask you a couple of last things in terms of if you were selling the film to an audience how would you describe mogul mowgli what would be your pitch to an audience to see because i think it's great but i also think that no one cares what critics think so how would you <laughs> sell it to them um i would say that this is the most personal piece of work i've ever done I would say that it's something that you haven't seen before because I'm not sure it's quite existed. And, uh, and that's because it's a kind of um, a Sufi horror musical comedy that defies um, categorization, directed by an award-winning new voice in cinema, Basam Tariq. Um, <laughs> but in terms of, that would be my pitch, but in terms of, I, I hope what, you know, I think people will really be able to relate to it because what Zed goes through is kind of what we're all going through in the pandemic. You know, we were all kind of like workaholics on the treadmill out there chasing some idea of worldly success or achievement. And then suddenly a health crisis comes along and it puts us into the purgatory of lockdown. And in lockdown, we're forced to confront what really matters to us and reconsider things. 
And that's what we've all been experiencing this year. And that's in a nutshell, really, Zed's journey through the film. So I think it will speak to a lot of people on, on quite a visceral level. The last thing I'm going to ask you is this, because the world is in such a tumultuous state and an anxious state, to use the word that you used when we started, do you think the world is changing for the better? We have heard so many stories of uh, prejudice and discrimination and everything that's happening. You're currently in America. I make no secret of the fact that I think America is currently being run by a psychopath. Do you think the world is changing for the better in the long run? I think it's always a mixed picture. And I think that we seem to be accelerating in two opposite directions simultaneously. Um, no, on one hand, you know, if you look at the kind of global awakening around race, racism and race consciousness that's happened in the wake, wake of Black Lives Matter, that feels like a step forward for us as a species. You know, on the other hand, uh, and, 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 you know, if you look at the collaboration and cooperation that's taking place around creating a vaccine or even people like, you know, putting, the, putting others first in, in how they shield and, and quarantine, that, that feels like collaboration on a scale that we probably haven't ever seen before globally. On the other hand, you're also seeing a lot of that kind of small-minded thinking, a lot of selfishness, a lot of short-sighted thinking around the planet. But I would like to believe that that is old-school thinking. That is the thinking that is dying. That is a thinking that has to die, otherwise we all die, you know. So um, I think things, will, I, I, I kind of feel like things will get a lot worse before they get better, but I have to believe they're going to get better. It's a good note to end on, Riz. Congratulations on the movie. Thanks so much for being on the programme. I wish you all the best. Stay safe. You too, Mark. Thanks. My thanks to Riz Ahmed and Mogul Mowgli is in cinemas from Friday. Check it out. It's well worth seeing. Thanks to my other guests, Aleem Khan, Joanna Scanlon and Trisha Tuttle. And thanks to you for listening to this Kermit on Film podcast. As I said, if you were part of the London Film Festival experience this year, then get in touch with me. You can tweet at Kermit Movie or at Kermode on film. Thanks for downloading this podcast. If you've enjoyed it, remember to subscribe, tell your friends, and also go to BFI Player and check out the new MK3D. You just go to BFI Player and put Mark Kermode into the search engine, and remember to search the free section, because MK3D is free to view. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Stay safe. Keep watching the skies. Secret to summer ready skin is here. Osea's number one best selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.